2 Samuel chapter 18. If you'll join me there as we continue our study in 2 Samuel. At this point, David's son Absalom has led quite a revolt against King David, his father, and the throne. David, as the rightful king, has now experienced the rebellion of one of his sons who's led an insurrection. He rallied supporters to himself and then ultimately we saw actually proclaimed himself publicly as the new king in Israel leading to a division of God's people and push David to really vacate his throne. We've seen how David not wanting to create an environment that would lead to bloodshed and a civil war within the land, having a true heart for the people and loving the people more than his own position or what he wanted to hold on to. David just very meekly vacated the throne, left with his family, left with some of his servants, crossed over uh, out of the Kidron Valley, leaving Jerusalem, and really just kind of put himself in a position of holding for a time as he sort of sought through informants to try and find out why Absalom has led this rebellion and what his intentions are. Uh, And David has gone out into the wilderness and really is kind of almost rewinded back into this situation he experienced earlier in the years of his life. Remember when King Saul kept David on the run for a time in the wilderness and is kind of living like a refugee with people who've remained loyal to him at this time. Different individuals have come to David and professed their loyalty. God's provided for David. Uh, Some of the means that would be necessary as he and hundreds of people have now left the city together. Uh, And he seems he set up a camp uh, in the area of Mahanim, as we'll see as we go on tonight. We left off of that last time. Uh, And he's kind of just waiting and evaluating what he's to do in this situation. Well, Absalom, uh, being more desirous to really solidify his throne, remember he, last time we saw, did this really horrific act of setting up a a tent there in his father's uh, household and went in sexually to ten of David's concubines that had been left behind and had relations with them as a way of just trying to demonstrate his takeover and his control and really just put a total and complete breach between him and his father. I mean, to commit such a vile act uh, was basically a way, as Absalom was following the counsel that was given to him, a way of just demonstrating that Absalom was full on into this revolt and he had no intentions of doing anything to reconcile with his father. And at this point, now Absalom has amassed his own army and last time as we left off, they were dialoguing about how they ought to now go out and hunt down King David and those who were with him, remaining loyal to him out in the wilderness to basically attack him and to assassinate David. So uh, Absalom has amassed, it seems, a, a army now. He's encamped in the land of Gilead. David is in Mahanim. And basically, David must now prepare to defend himself in the same way that multiple times he had to defend himself when he was hunted down and attacked by Saul and by his troops. Now, uh, what Absalom fails to remember as his uh, youthfulness and really his naivety, thinking he knows a whole lot more than his father does, as often could be the case with young people at times, uh, can be very idealistic. He fails to realize that his father is a is a you know battle hardened man who with hundreds of men survived for years, launched military campaigns, and David realizes that he can 
fight this battle on his own terms. David's not attacking them, so David can basically choose the battleground. So David is going to very strategically recognizing that he's greatly outnumbered numerically. Absalom has a much greater army. David is just going to use strategy and military wit. He's going to use the terrain we're going to see even to basically force them to attack him in a way whereby he can set up uh, ambushes and divide the troops and, and just really uses wisdom and strategy to defeat the idealistic uh, and eager attitude of Absalom as he now comes out with force to try and conquer his father. So chapter 18, verse 1 says to us, David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Now, very interesting, it tells us here now in verse 1 that David numbers the people and he sets over them captains and leaders it says over not only hundreds but verse one says actually over groups of thousands now that should interest us because remember when david first left he left with really what was kind of like his his mighty men his royal bodyguard his secret service if you would somewhere around 600 or so men and now it says that david has thousands with him at this time which shows to us that as this episode was unfolding the revolt of Absalom and and David just vacating the throne very meekly that over time those who had a loyal heart for David those who appreciated David as their rightful king they recognized that he was the king and the authority that God had given to them and they had prospered under David's leadership and under his reign, they now are leaving Jerusalem, leaving their comforts and saying, listen, if David is going to be the rejected king, but the rightful king, that's fine. We'll still side with David because he's the right king and he's God's king. And though David at this point, in a sense, is the rejected king, they realize he's the rightful king and he's the king they want to be submitted to. So now thousands of people, it seems, have gone to show their loyalty to David and are with him at this time. And what a beautiful picture, uh, because in the same way, in this day and age, Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus is God's king, but yet in this time in human history, uh, unfortunately, Jesus by many is the rejected king. He's the rightful king, but he's the rejected king. But yet there are those, you and I are part of that company, who say, you know what, even if he's the rejected king, Jesus is the rightful king. And so we will leave whatever opportunities, comforts, whatever may be available, uh, and, and wherever it, we need to go and whatever we need to do to stay loyal to Jesus and to follow Jesus, we're willing to do that. And if that means going out into the wilderness and living like a rejected people, then so be it. You know, the Bible tells us that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And there's this beautiful picture here of them rallying to David, though he's rejected at this point. He's not being honored as the one who should be on the throne. They're faithful to him. And what a beautiful picture in some ways of how we should seek to do the same thing. So David now, he has amassed quite a following with him and he's delegating now wisely leadership putting his uh, people in different brigades if you will setting up uh, for this attack that's about to happen and verse 2 says that David sent out one third of the people under the hand of Joab remember that was his chief general and then another third he put under the hand of Abishai the son of Zariah Joab's brother and then the final third of his army he put under the hand of Ittai the Gittite 
And the king said to the people, I will also surely go out with you myself. So as David separates them into three companies, preparing them, he then pledges to them his commitment as their king and leader to go out to battle with them. He says there in the end of verse 2, I also will surely go out with you myself. He says, look, I'm not just seeking to provide leadership to you and give you instruction and guidance. I'm willing to go out and engage in the battle with you. I'm willing to swing the sword and to toss the spears and to, you know, to, to duck the, the spears thrown at me. And I'm willing to put myself at risk and put my own blood and sweat and tears into this. And again, as we look at this picture, we understand the reality that David was a real servant leader. David was a shepherd king. It's one of the things that set David apart from Saul and so many others is, is that David coming from a humble background, he was a, a shepherd boy at times living out in the fields before he ever ascended to the throne and was protecting the sheep and doing what he could to fight off, remember, bears and lions and so forth. And, and David, he was a leader, but he was a servant leader. And David here says, listen, I'm willing to go out and engage hands on in the work and fight the battles with you together as those I'm providing leadership to. And of course, just this beautiful picture of the type of leadership really that is the leadership of the kingdom of God and the kind of leaders that God wants. Uh, God doesn't want leaders in his kingdom that are just going to bark orders and give directions and say, however, I'm going to sit back here on my little ivory throne and you go out and do the work and you put in the blood and sweat and tears and, and, and you put yourself at risk and, and I'm just going to give direction and, and then you basically do all the duty and all the work. Uh, God wants those who lead from the front and those who are the, the, the chief servant in some ways. Remember, Jesus said the greatest among you should be the servant of all. Uh, and you can lead not only just by giving direction, but also lead by providing direction, by engaging yourself and being a servant and a worker. And these are the kind of leaders really that God wants, that we would be servant leaders. And if you lead in any capacity, that's the kind of leadership Jesus provided that's the kind of leadership that, that David provided. When we look in the New Testament, we see this, this was Paul's heart. I love Acts chapter uh, 28, where after a, a storm at sea, they're shipwrecked, and, and, and Paul the apostle is wrecked on this you know, island together with a whole bunch of other people, and then now they're wet and they're cold, and it was right after a storm, and Paul had warned them about this storm. He had told them God you know, was directing them to try and help, but nonetheless, they found themselves shipwrecked, and I love the scene because it says that Paul was going out and picking up sticks to put wood on the fire. And you remember then the serpent fastens to his hand. But again, I love this picture because here's Paul. And Paul, here he is. He's a pastor, a teacher, an apostle. I mean, he's a, a, a spiritual leader. And Paul's not saying, hey, somebody should start a fire. Somebody needs to get some firewood. Paul says the, the, the fire needs wood. So that's part of the work. And Paul just is out. He's picking up sticks and doing this mundane, practical task. And again, just this beautiful example of servant leadership. And I love this when we see it in the word of God, because it's the example that God wants to set before us. These are the kind of leaders that God wants, the kind of leaders God raises up. So David says, I'm ready to go out to battle with you. But notice verse three, the people aren't too excited about this idea given the dynamic that exists at this point. The people answered the king, David, and said to him, you shall not go out, exclamation point. There was no way, Jose, that's not a good idea. 
uh, given the situation that exists here, we don't want you to go out. For if we flee away and run, they won't care about us, nor if half of us die. So if they kill half of us, uh, that won't even be that big of a deal. Uh, for they will not care about us, but you, they say to David as their leader and king, are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city so uh, again the people understood the value and the importance of david as their leader and as their king and recognizing his leadership they said look you would actually be of greater help to us if you stay focused on providing direction for us and you stay alive and so they say look we, we don't want something to happen to you because if something happens to us or something happens to ten thousand of us uh, that's nothing in comparison that if they're able to take you out and you're the one that the enemy is going to target, they want to destroy you because you're our leader. And they recognize this reality as in any warfare. You know, if you want to uh, completely defeat uh, any type of a force, one of the best things to do is you, you, you attack the highest ranking officer. You defeat the general. You take out their king and, and that causes defeat to the whole rest of the troops and the army. And uh, if David was lost, it would be a much larger impact and defeat. And they realized the enemy was going to target him as their leader. So they say to David, look, we want you to stay safe. And, and this is a beautiful picture on the other side. They, they, they recognize the value of David as their leader and they're making statements saying, David, look, we want to protect you. We don't want anything to happen to you. We appreciate you want to come out to battle, but there's no need for you to be in the battle. You give guidance here from the city and we're in a vulnerable place in this situation. It would be too risky for you to come out to this battle. We appreciate your heart, but they say, David, please, we don't want you to go out. You're worth more help if you just remain in the city at this point in time and look at verse 4 David's response as their king it's quite beautiful the king said to them whatever seems best to you I will do so the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands to begin to deploy themselves to prepare for this attack that was coming from Absalom and his troops but you notice verse 4 there that as a good leader, again, a good mark here we see of David's leadership is David is willing to listen to the advice of the people that God's put around him. Though he is a king, the highest ranking leader in the land of Israel, the highest ranking political leader, and yet he shows his wisdom and leadership by listening to the counsel of people that God has put around him. And when they say to David, hey, we appreciate your heart, but our preference is, our thought is, our counsel, input, and advice is, we really don't think you should engage in this battle. It would be safer and wiser for you to stay protected in the city and give us direction because of your value. And if you're lost, that would be a horrible impact and defeat of us. They give their input and instead of David saying, excuse me, did you forget I'm the king here? Did you forget my ideas are the top priority or that I hold the highest authority? He doesn't do any of that. David just says, hey, you know what? If you think that's what's best, then I'm willing to humbly go along with your idea. I'm willing to take your advice and to take it into consideration. And what David does here, he shows the wisdom of making a well-informed decision. And any good leader learns that one of the most valuable things in leadership is learning how to have a teachable heart and how to listen to the advice and input of other people around you. 
and to value that input, to appreciate that advice, to listen to what's being said. And though you may have to make the final decision, though the buck may stop with you, it is great wisdom to take into consideration the advice and input of others before you make your final decision. And sometimes that may mean that their advice and input is what you actually choose to go with. And you choose to be flexible and say, you know what, I think what you're saying is probably the better advice here so I'm going to go with what you're saying rather than what I was thinking or rather than what I was feeling and David here shows this flexibility he's willing notice to do what's best not just what he wanted to or not just what his preference is and sometimes that's a challenge for all of us sometimes we may have a preference of what we'd like to do but true wisdom would say you know what I may want to do this or this is what I think is best or what but the attitude should be but what is best and if what is best is not what I prefer or what I'd like to do or what I think I should do but actually you know what I think that if that's what's going to be best me staying behind then I'm willing to be flexible and as human beings it's great value when we can learn how to be flexible we can adjust our agenda we can be willing to accommodate to what might be the best in a situation. Blessed are the flexible, Pastor Chuck used to say. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And there's just great wisdom here in David, not only being teachable and listening to advice, but being flexible, willing to adjust his agenda or ideas for the better interest of what would be the best thing. He's not stubbornly doing what he wants, but he's saying, hey, what would be best and help everybody? That's what I'm willing to do. So verse 5 says, the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He gives them input, the three leaders over the three different uh, sort of troops, groups going out. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. Now, this was probably a difficult thing to hear. Again, let's let's keep in mind again who Absalom is and what he's done. He's David's son. Absalom has already murdered, premeditated, cold-blooded murder, one of David's other sons, Amnon. Uh, Absalom has revolted against his father and led a, a, basically a, a division in the kingdom. Uh, Absalom has you know, had sexual relations publicly with 10 of the women in his father's household to basically disgrace David, to disgrace the family. He's basically caused David to have to vacate the throne. He's caused a bunch of hurt and inconvenience. We've already seen one person, Ahithophel, has defected from David and then ultimately got so messed up, he actually committed suicide and took his own life. And so there are all these compounding hurts and problems and sinful evil things that Absalom has done as a very brazen stubborn arrogant young man who's caused a lot of problems and now David is saying to his captains and leaders as they're about to go out and defend themselves against the now Absalom's attacking them and he says but listen whatever happens in the battle deal gently with the young man Absalom in other words bring him back alive don't don't kill him and David has to say, for my sake, because for their sake, nobody will want to show mercy to Absalom. Absalom deserved in their minds to be put to death. The first person we want to kill is Absalom. I mean, this guy had done a lot of horrible things. But David here shows a tremendous heart of love 
for his son and really a tremendous heart of mercy and grace that, that, that he's asking them, please, he's saying, uh, on behalf of my heart as the one behind the throne, I'm asking, please deal gently with this young man. Yes, he's done a lot of horrible things, but please be merciful to him. And what a beautiful representation David is really of the heart of Christ here and, and the greater throne, the throne of God, that Jesus had such a similar heart. I mean, despite the horrible things that were done to Jesus, Jesus, remember as he's dying on the cross, would say things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, in the incredible mercy of Jesus, the mercy that Jesus showed to Judas and people who did the most horrible, selfish, cruel things, and yet the mercy, the grace, the love of Jesus, and her David reflects that heart, willing to extend that. And thank goodness, I mean, how much more have we experienced that? How much more does that heart come from the throne of God, from Jesus for us? In many ways, there are things we've done in some ways comparable to Absalom. We've done some pretty grievous and horrible things in our lives. We've hurt some people. We've made some pretty bad mistakes. And yet from the throne, the greater throne, the throne of grace comes this merciful heart. So this edict goes out now. And it probably, as I said, was very difficult to hear that, that David's requesting this. But he's the king and he's their leader and authority and asking them to honor this. So verse six says the people went out to the field of the battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. And the people of Israel, that is those who were following Absalom, the greater majority in, in this defection away from his father and insurrection, they were overthrown by the servants of David. And a great slaughter took place. Notice 20,000 people took place that day. For the battle was scattered over the face of the whole countryside and the woods, that is the rough terrain, all the brush and the, you know, the conditions of the terrain out there, it says devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So uh, again, what this is implying, in the midst of this great slaughter, some 20,000 people die in this battle, not of David's men, but of Absalom's followers, an army that have amassed around him. And the Bible's telling us David so strategically used the terrain that was around him, he purposely chose apparently a terrain that was very rough and rugged and the conditions actually played to the advantage of them having a smaller army numerically in such a way where people were getting caught up in brush and separated and being discomfited and didn't know where they were. So it was very easy then with David, with a smaller group of men, to just launch attacks and ambushes defending themselves against these greater groups coming against them. But the saddest thing to read in verse 20 is notice the slaughter, 20,000 people die as the result of this. Now, now, now let me again bring this to, to bear. As the result of one man, Absalom, as the result of one man's pride and selfish actions and divisive attitude and all the things that he's done as the result of his sin, the compounding effects, 20,000 people end up dying as a result. 20,000 women potentially, their husbands do not come home to them. Even more children, their fathers don't come home to them. All is the result of one stubborn, arrogant, selfish man who felt like that he was entitled to do something or to, you know, kind of take things in a, and, and people and followed behind him and rallied, and he misled all these people. And the pain 
and the dev- I mean the, the far-reaching effects of those who were wounded because of this leader who you know conducted himself in the ways that he did. I'm just utterly sad to realize the impact that comes to pass because of this. Well, verse nine it almost begins to get somewhat humorous what God does. Talk about poetic justice. Look at verse nine. Then Absalom met the servants of David. And here's how it happened. The Bible is going to tell us. Absalom was riding on a mule and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree and his head was caught in the terebinth tree. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth and the mule which was under him went on. So here's Absalom. He's probably maybe you know, confused. Maybe he's on the run because of this great slaughter. He's riding on his mule and maybe he's looking. I mean, I have to imagine he's kind of looking every direction and he's probably nervous and he doesn't realize he goes under some low-hanging branches of this terebinth tree and somehow his head gets caught up in these trees and like a cartoon, you know, the mule keeps riding on and now here's Absalom, you know, with his feet pedaling there and he's stuck now in these low-hanging branches with his feet up in the air, hanging between heaven and earth, and, and just kind of, you want to talk about left in a very vulnerable condition, and, and now he's stuck again. Was it his hair that got caught up? People say it was, remember Absalom was the one who had this incredibly gorgeous long black hair. It was so thick and heavy, he you know, would grow it, and then he would cut it once a year and, 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 and weigh it out. And it was sort of, sort of a, an indication of his beauty and his vanity and all that kind of stuff. And how fitting, I mean, this is, again, to me, is what I almost somewhat look at as poetic justice here in some ways, that, that here is this young man, and if there is one thing you could say about Absalom, this was a guy who truly, absolutely had a big head. Truly, Correct. I mean, I mean, he was arrogant and he drew people to himself and he was just vain and charismatic and able. It says he stole the hearts of the people. I mean, he just he was winsome in the way he, he was just a very charismatic personality. He knew how to draw people and win them over and get them on his side. And, and, and again, uh, the Bible says he was very attractive and good looking. So you're talking about an individual, again, a young man, just full of himself and very big headed. And wouldn't that just poetic justice that now his big head gets stuck in some branches. <laughs> that big head just gets stuck up in an area he's hanging oh, yeah, and he's just dangling there in the middle of a tree. But again, as we look at this, what a fitting reminder how easily God can dethrone somebody who's proud. How absolutely simple it is for God to humble a person when he chooses to humble somebody. God doesn't need David's army. God doesn't need swords. God just orchestrates a few circumstances and says, you know what? Let me do a little poetic justice here. You got a big head? Your big head's going to get you in trouble. And he just lets his big head get him in trouble. And God just uses his own issues in some ways, if you would, to, to cause him to get stuck, to get caught, and to get trapped because God wants to humble him. And God's dealing with him now for the wrongdoing that he's done and leaves him hanging there, dangling, vulnerable, well, verse 10 says a certain man saw this and went and told Joab, the general. He says, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him. And why did you not strike him there to the ground? You should have killed him. I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. He says, what, what are you doing? You, you had a perfect opportunity. He's vulnerable hanging there. You should have killed this rascal. Everybody hates Absalom. 
Why wouldn't you kill him when he's vulnerable like that? But the man said to Joab in response, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai saying, beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life for there is nothing hidden from the king and you yourself would have set yourself against me. So Joab confronts the individual who discovers Absalom hanging there, this soldier, and he says, what did you do? Why did you pass up the opportunity? You should have killed him. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I, I appreciate your passion and your you know, persuasion to want to just you know, take matters into our own hands here. But he says, uh, could I remind you with all due respect, General Joab, we all heard when the king gave the edict to you and to Ittai and to all the captains to deal gently with his son and not to harm his son, but to show mercy to his son. And he says, I don't care how much money you would have given me. It would not have been worth it to me to satisfy my own preferences and to disregard the throne and to not listen to the king's word. And this man shows a very beautiful example that he has the courage to submit his own thoughts and his own feelings. Because I'm sure everyone kind of felt the same way towards Absalom. He'd made many lives miserable. He had done quite a bit of evil, but this man submits his own thoughts and feelings to what the king's will is instead. And what a beautiful example for us because the reality is this. We have a throne, the throne of God. We have a king, the king of kings, Jesus, who has a will in regards to certain things. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you this. Sometimes the will of the throne of God and the word of my king, Jesus, sometimes contradicts how I feel. It may contradict how I think about something or think about someone. And so sometimes I find myself in this quandary where sometimes an opportunity presents itself. And my fleshly nature, when something's dangling right there in front of me, like Absalom, would love to just carpe diem, seize the day, say something or do something or act in a certain way or, or, or fulfill my preference in a scenario. And yet I find that there's this tension that's going on within saying, are you going to exercise your right and your will or are you going to submit your will to what you know is the will of the throne? Which is that you're to do the opposite of what you're feeling right now. You're to deny yourself what you may want to do in this situation and instead obey the authority of the throne. And sometimes we find ourselves in this place and God help us to have the courage even if people are pressuring us. You know, Joab's pressuring. What's the matter with you, man? Hey, you're entitled to do that. Just do it. And, and he says, no, listen, I'm not entitled to anything. I am a servant of the throne. And my king told me I'm not supposed to do this. So if that is my king's word, my king's word trumps everything. My king's word trumps everything I feel, everything that anyone else is saying. And there's this beautiful, if you would, almost a fear of having to answer for his actions that helps him to stay on the right course and to obey. He says there in verse 13, listen, he said, I'd act falsely against my own life because he says there's nothing that's hidden from the king. I wouldn't escape if I do this. There's nothing the king won't be aware of. 
and it is his consciousness of the fear of answering for his actions that his king would hold him accountable for what he did. That's what kept him in check. And for you and I, it's much the same, only it should be the fear of God in our lives. The fear of the Lord is clean, keeping us from evil in our lives. And, and that statement there, there's nothing that is hidden from the king. Listen, we should take that to heart because that's true. There's nothing that's hidden from our king. He's aware of everything. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 13, everything is naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that's, if we cannot find, in other words, if we cannot find enough motivation within ourselves to say, it is simply not right to violate the word of my king or, or to violate the will of the throne of my king that, that has authority over me, then if nothing else, I hope that the fear of answering to the authority of the throne and the fact that the king is aware of everything that goes on and that we would have to answer for him that there's nothing hidden from the king that that would then if nothing else be what motivates us to do what's right to say no to ourselves, to say no to our flesh and to do what is right and righteous by submitting ourselves to the throne of our king and our leader well Joab he's not going to hear this you know Joab's personality I mean he's just a kind of a harsh and rough and tumble guy he says i cannot linger with you he said we're wasting time here he might fall out of the tree so he took three spears in his hand and he thrust them through absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree and then 10 young men who bore joab's armor surrounded absalom and they struck and killed him so joab and his men rush over to the spot and they just put him to death very quickly and very uh, violently in the way they go about it as he's hanging there they just pierce him through to make sure that he's dead so Joab verse 16 blew the trumpet and returned from pursuing Israel for Joab held back the people so Joab notice he, he's the antithesis of what we just saw in this unnamed servant Joab does the exact opposite Joab exalts his own reasoning over what is the will of the throne Joab in his own mind thinks you know what I don't care what the throne says in my reasoning this guy deserves to be punished in my logical comprehension this person deserves to get this they deserve payback they deserve punishment and and, and he put his own reasoning in a matter over the importance of submitting the authority and following the king's command and and listen a lot of times one of the biggest areas we struggle with this let's be quite frank is in the area of like forgiveness and mercy because something happens to us somebody hurts us or upsets us or wounds us and our flesh like Joab feels like as we reason out I'm entitled to hurt this person back I'm entitled to treat them wrong I mean I'm I I have a right to do something painful and to hurt this person and the problem is 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 typically we don't just measure back adequate retribution we go ten times harder and, and we take it to a whole nother level. That's why God is the only one who is good at taking care of justice because God in a just way says vengeance is mine because God does it in a just manner. We take it to a much more harsh degree. And sometimes like Joab, we make the mistake where we let our own feelings about a matter or our intensity or whatever our emotions overtake us and we disregard the throne and the king's command and we just take matters into our own hands. So he now murders David's son, puts him to death in the battle after his own king, the true authority, told him 
treat my son with mercy. And they took Absalom and then cast him into a large pit in the woods, laid a very large heap of stones over him. And then all Israel fled everyone to his tent. So Absalom is put to death. They don't even give him a, 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 a proper burial. They just toss him in a pit throw stones over top of his dead body there which had been pierced through many times with swords and spears and Absalom verse 18 tells us that in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself so you can get to get the idea of what Absalom was like in the king's valley for he said I have no son to keep my name in my remembrance and he called the pillar after his own name and to this day it's called Absalom's monument well, verse 19 says, Now Ahimahaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab, Let me run now and take news to the king how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. He wants to go back and give report of the battle. The battle's been successful. We've defeated jo uh, Absalom and his army. He says, Let me run back and tell him. But Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day. In other words, this just isn't your assignment. I mean, he had taken assignments before. This was something Ahimehaz had done. But for whatever reason, Joab says on this day, to bring back this news, this, this assignment is not for you. You may want to do this assignment. You have made a desire to do this assignment. But he says, this isn't your assignment. This is not something that you are to do. For you shall take the news another day. You'll get to do this, but, but not at this point, he says. But today you shall take no news because... The king's son is dead. In other words, there seems to be some concern with Joab that this could be a risky mission. If you go back, David doesn't respond well. You might lose your life. So it could be that he recognized that maybe something could happen in David's emotion over this and he could be struck dead. There are a couple of times when people brought bad news back to David. We've seen in prior chapters that David didn't respond too well. <laughs> and, and he put him to death. So maybe he's concerned or maybe it's just that Joab realizes you're not the most qualified because you don't know all the facts. And so it's better that you not take the news. And Joab instead said to the Cushite, interesting, a non-Israeli man, you go and tell the king what you have seen. And again, is that the reason? Because maybe the Cushite saw with his own eyes exactly what happened. So he was better equipped. He was more prepared to give adequate report back to David if questions were asked. And this was a very sensitive subject. David's son just got killed after David didn't want him to get killed. So Joab says, look, you go, the Cushite, you tell him what you've seen, perhaps a first-hand eyewitness. So the Cushite bailed himself and ran, it says afterwards. And Ahimehaz, verse 22, the son of Zadok said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me run after the Cushite so Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? You want to run, but you don't have the full message, he's saying to him. You have a desire to do this, but you're not prepared properly to do this at this point. So he's persistent. Again, verse 23, but whatever happens, let me run. So again, very persistent Again, just wanting to be able to do this and he's got great zeal and enthusiasm so he keeps persisting and pushing. Let me do this. Please let me run. So Joab finally says to him, fine, run then. Try it. You want to enter the Olympics? Go for it, he says. Run. So Himahaz ran by way of the plane and notice, I mean, this guy was passionate. He outran the Cushite. So he got a ladder start. Somehow he even outran, whether he was fast or 
put a lot of effort into it. He had a lot of passion and zeal, a lot of energy and enthusiasm. He outruns the Cushite. And David was sitting between, between the two gates. There would be an outer and inner gate to a city typically as a way to strategically minimize if you were attacked that would be behind the first gate. So David's sitting there and the watchman went up to the roof to the wall and lifted his eyes and looked and there was a man running alone. And the watchman cried out, told the king and the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth and he came rapidly and drew near. So as the person's running, he said, hey, here's come someone and David says, is it just an individual? Yes, king, it's just one man running towards us. And he says, okay, then that's a messenger. No problem. If it was a group of troops, that might be an attack, but it's just one man. That's somebody bringing back word from the battlefield. Good, we're going to get report to find out what happened out on the battlefield. And the watchman then saw, verse 26, another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first man is like the running of Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok. Now, I don't know what that means. I mean, maybe this guy had a unique run, a particular stride. I mean, how he would identify, he looks, he runs just like Ahimehaz. I mean, did this guy like a, you know, Usain Bolt or something? I mean, just how did they identify? Hey, that looks like Ahimehaz, the way that he's running. Somehow they recognize that's who the front runner is coming towards them. So the king said, oh, he's a good man. And he's therefore going to come with good news. So Ahimehaz, verse 28, called out, said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed himself with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king said, first question in David's mind, he's got one top concern about this battle is Absalom, the young man Absalom, safe? How's my son? Did my son survive? Remember, that was David's top concern when they went out to the battle. So the first question he wants to know, is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimehaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult. I, I, I kind of saw something happening in a bunch of commotion, he says, but I didn't know what it was about. In other words, he didn't have the answer David needed. He didn't have the facts. He didn't have the full message. He was someone who really wanted to be a messenger, but he didn't quite have the whole message. And that's always a problem. Sometimes people really want to be a messenger and they want to run and give a message, but they don't have the message. And, and if you don't have the full message, you're not ready yet to be a messenger. You got to make sure you have the message properly first. And Ahimehaz comes and he says, I didn't know. I saw a commotion. The battle went well, but I don't, I don't know what happened to your son. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And just then the Cushite came and said, there is good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day on all who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? Same question to the next messenger. And the Cushite answered, may the Lord, or excuse me, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. The other indication, he's dead. David understood exactly what he meant. Your son is dead. He died in the battle. And the king, notice verse 33, was deeply moved. 
and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said thus, O Absalom, my son, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. So David now finds himself stricken with grief. Again, this is the second son that's died. The, the pain of losing a child is a, is, is a pain in a life of a, of a parent, a death that's just, it's unexplainable. I mean, death as hard as it is, but the death of a child certainly is realistically, typically the hardest type of death because it's so out of order. Parents expect to be buried by their children, not to bury their own children. So David here, even though his son's an adult and, and his son has done a lot of hurtful things, David still loved his son. I mean, and his son was quite a rascal. Would you agree? I mean, his son was was pretty much a problem starter and he created all kinds of issues, but yet that was still his son. And David longed to have his son have the opportunity to have mercy extended to him and that's why David wanted him kept safe because David's heart was maybe he'll repent. Bring him back safe. David was never willing as a parent of a prodigal. He was never willing to give up hope that maybe his son might turn. That maybe his son would change. And so now that David hears his son has been put to death, he is just stricken with the grief uh, as a parent uh, uh, of death and, and just a very, very hard, painful thing. We'll see in the next chapter as it goes forward that David cannot get over the grief. I mean, it literally, the grief and the depression sets in so hard on David that, that Joab has to come to him and rebuke him and say, David, look, I know that you're in the midst of grief. I know you're thoroughly depressed but your emotions are now destroying you. And it's going to come to a place where literally somebody's going to have to like rebuke David back into reality because David was just beginning to behave wrongly because his grief was so just consuming his life. And, and grief can do that if it's not channeled and properly addressed. It can literally just begin to destroy a person. And cause them to conduct themselves wrong and to, to treat people improperly and to begin to just literally kind of check out of reality because they can't cope with properly and be willing to address their own grief and depression. And it can have a very detrimental effect. And, and, and let me bring this all back to, again, this thing with Ahimehaz, who wanted to run and bring the message to David. And remember, Joab said, this isn't your assignment. Another day you can do this. I appreciate your energy and enthusiasm. I know that you want to feel important and that you're a messenger, but the king's son is dead. Remember he said that the king's son is dead. I don't think you're the right guy for this. And so the Cushite is sent instead, but then he persists and persists and persists. And when he gets there, it tells us in verse 29 that when David asks the question, he's able to give the first part of the message, the battle's going well, we've had success, we've had victory. But when it comes to the hard part of the message, which is to give the death notification, Ahimaaz can't answer it. Now, it would be fair to say, considering what's taking place here, that it's not like Ahimahaz, though we didn't know the details of how it happened, it wasn't that Ahimahaz didn't know that David's son had died because Joab told him point blank. That was part of why Joab said, you can't run and bring the message. He said, this isn't the right assignment for you because he says, this is a unique situation. The king's son is dead. It wasn't that Ahimahaz didn't know that Absalom had died. 
in some ways, it was that Ahimehaz wanted to be a messenger. He wanted the opportunity to do this. But when it came to delivering the hard part of the message, Ahimehaz didn't want to do that part. I want to talk about the victory. I want to talk about the battle. But to do the hard part, to say the hard part of the message, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. I don't know if I'm ready to do that. I don't know if I'm willing to do that. And listen, if we want to make ourselves available to be used by the Lord, we need to be willing to do the hard stuff too. If we want to be someone who's a messenger for the Lord, God help us to not entertain the thought of being a messenger of the Lord in any way until we're ready to deliver the whole message which means that we're willing to say maybe what's easier and more palatable, but that we're also willing on behalf of honoring the king and doing what's right and loving in the sight of people to also be willing to say what's hard at times too, to deliver the hard part of the message, to say those things that may be difficult to say, that may be hard to say, that may be difficult for people to process because you know what? If we're going to be a messenger, then we have to be a faithful messenger. If we're going to be a servant of the Lord and we want to serve the Lord, we need to be willing to serve him with no strings attached. And so Ahimaaz basically learned a lesson the hard way. Listen, Ahimaaz, if you're not prepared to do something yet, sometimes it's better to let someone else who is prepared do it if they're going to do it faithfully. And he had to learn this lesson as the Cushite went back and was willing to deliver this message. And I think it's just a great reminder to us. Listen, ministry and serving people and being faithful to the Lord and speaking the gospel and doing things on the Lord's behalf, it's not always nice, neat, clean, easy. It's not easy to say hard things to people sometimes or to share difficult, painful news or to talk to people about sin or hell or, or challenge them. For, I mean, there, there are hard parts to this. But that's an important thing. And we need to be willing to love people enough and love the Lord enough to say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want to be faithful and to let the Lord